This is The Professor's Corner, a McGuire Woods series exploring business and legal issues prevalent in today's private equity industry. Tune in with McGuire Woods partner, Jeff Cockrell, as he and specialists share real-world insight to help enhance your knowledge. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Corner Series. I'm your host, Jeff Cockrell, uh, partner at McGuire Woods. Here at The Corner Series, we try to bring together uh, thought leaders and deal makers with respect to private equity investing in healthcare, mostly provider services, but also life science and uh, other areas. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by my good friend, Larry Alisco at Whipfly. Larry, maybe you could give a brief introduction of yourself and Whipfly's uh, transaction support practice. Sure. Thanks, Jeff, and appreciate you uh, giving me a few minutes here. I'm Larry Alisco. I run our uh, healthcare transaction team nationally, which means that we get involved in a lot of uh, quality of earnings, due diligence, uh, really assist investors, sellers, buyers, in the transaction, uh, quite often, you know, even when transactions are taking place, the sell side quality of earnings, you know, really helps, I think, make things happen. I've also been, you know, heavily involved in healthcare for the past 30 years. And uh, I have a lot of clients that are your normal accounting tax clients. So I, I feel, you know, I've had a lot of experience in this. I'm also a certified coding specialist by a group called AHIMA. And I'm also uh, certified by the AICPA to do business valuation. So kind of get a lot of uh, of water under the bridge in my career. And uh, I really enjoy the opportunity to help uh, physicians, providers, and uh, those in the healthcare space. So, Larry, I was thinking we might talk some about value-based medicine. It's, uh, by all accounts, it's the wave of the future but it's been slow to roll in. I see it in certain areas, certain sectors with certain kinds of payers, but it has not swept over the entire market. When you think of value-based medicine in the healthcare provider services uh, arena, maybe let's start with how you would define that. And then we'll talk about what the specific subsectors are where that comes into play. So I think in, in, most businesses, you, you would be remiss if you didn't believe that you were being paid for your performance. I, as an accountant and, and consultant, need to perform at a certain level in order to earn what I'm compensated for. Jeff, same with you on the legal side. Doctors and providers are really provided on a fee-for-service basis where you know whatever CPT codes you bill, Whatever you're able to build, the the higher the volume, the more you get paid, the more complex the procedure is, the more you get paid. And, you know, quite often that is a there's a lack of alignment between the providers and the payers. Payers are interested in denying claims and they go to great lengths to do that historically. Uh, they're, They're also interested in controlling costs. You know, their their job, you know, is to collect insurance premiums and to pay as, as, as little as, as possible, quite frankly, uh, while still maintaining, you know, a level of care that meets all standards that are that are, uh, you know, required. So my view is that that value based care changes that landscape. It's pay for performance. It creates risk, you know, at the provider level where where providers are in fact, either going to be paid for performing well or not being paid if they don't perform well. 
And that's really what I see as, as a mega trend. If you look at, at uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, they believe that by 2030, every, every Medicare, every Medicaid contract is going to be have some sort of a risk-based component to it. The idea of fee-for-service, at least from the government's perspective, without any risk, without any pay-for-performance, is not planned to exist you know, in the relatively uh, near term. Value-based medicine can take a number of forms, whether that's kind of full capitation where the provider is paid a certain amount per person, per month, or something like that, and then is responsible for taking care of whatever happens versus bundled payments where a, a particular episode is going to connect to a certain payment and then the provider has to manage the pros and cons of navigating that particular episode. Um, so I, I've seen value-based medicine coming alive uh, in more limited contexts. So uh, you see a lot of primary care practices being gobbled up uh, with the, the principal idea from a value-based care perspective is connects mostly to Medicare Advantage contracting, where you can contract with the, the federal government on a capitation sort of basis. Um, I also see it in certain bundled payment areas with commercial payers where take uh, uh, orthopedic where uh, you can, everyone has to bundle kind of hip and knee replacements, but you can bundle other things. And so there's some pretty specific risk bearing that the providers can, can lean into. What sectors do you see this coming to beyond some of those limited primary care for Medicare Advantage uh, certain uh, bundled payment types of sectors. Where do you see this becoming a more feasible idea? So I think you mentioned orthopedics, the musculoskeletal idea of, you know, are you, is your back pain going to require surgery? Can you be treated with physical therapy and medication before going that route? I can also give you an example. You know, my, my wife just had double knee replacement in the last two years. And she went to uh, a, a, one of the top specialists in this area. That doctor did not take anything other than, you know, one payer. And I'm assuming that that payer had, you know, a very strong pay for performance structure in their contract. Didn't take Medicare, didn't take anything other than one payer. My wife basically had outpatient surgery both times, and the whole process took about six hours. My guess is that that doctor was well compensated because everybody else, every other patient that was involved in, in that procedure, you know, usually there's a there's a stay overnight, and if you're self-pay, you're he's probably collecting three or four times the amount that he's be, being paid from his his commercial payer. So I think that you're looking at I think an example of pay performance there in the in the orthopedic side. I also see. Cardiology, you know, the, the idea of being of, of treatment, the idea of following a regimen on diet and, and being able to effectuate a, a good outcome, you know, as opposed to just going in and immediately performing surgery. Some of the other areas, you know, obviously, you know, primary care. I think that when, when you're looking at, you know, other specialties, uh, OBGYN is one as well. That's where you have a bundled type of payment for, for maternity. You're looking at opportunities there for better outcomes, you know, more see 
less C-sections, less drugs. What, what are you using in your pharma when you're treating your patients? You know, so OBGYN is also, you know, one of the areas. Uh, Jeff, are you seeing anything else in, in the other specialties? You mentioned like uh, cardiology, uh, OBGYN, those are kind of present themselves more for episodic events. Like you present with uh, COPD, uh, it's, it's easy to wrap a bundle around that kind of condition. Um, similarly with uh, OBGYN and pregnancies, so I see it mostly in the types of things that uh, are contained within themselves and lend themselves to bundled payments. What I don't see and I think will be interesting to watch as it evolves is I've found commercial payers have been, it's been much more difficult to uh, enter into arrangements that are more of a full capitation variety. You can do that with Medicare Advantage contracting as a primary care physician, but that's with the federal government. I've found private insurance has been more reluctant to, to engage in that kind of value-based contracting. Um, are you seeing anything different on that front? No, I, I think it's you know slowly becoming more more prominent in the commercial side, but it is it is a slower process. I think one of the reasons for that is that you know if you look at, at a, a typical commercial payer, their population may be much younger than uh, folks folks like me that are that are that are seniors that have greater opportunity for savings because there's more procedures, there's more work that's necessary. You know, I think you also kind of see that in the Medicaid side as well, where there there are opportunities, you know, with behavioral health and, uh, you know, improved diet and, and, and you know, really, you know, following a, a, a stronger regimen. Uh, I think that in that population, you've got opportunities as well. I think the commercial payers look at somebody that's, you know, 30 years old, not a lot of, of procedures, not a lot of opportunity really to, to, to have, you know, better outcomes and savings because there isn't, you know, that much going on. Maybe flipping the conversation more directly into what you do in the context of a transaction from if you're representing the buyer, let's say, uh, recognizing it's kind of if you're on the seller, it's the same dance just in reverse. But what are the kind of accounting pressure points in kind of risk assessment of the financial performance of a target that is heavily engaged in value-based contracting? Well, you know, value-based contracting really, I think, requires three three things. Uh, you, you really need a clinician that's going to be understanding whether there's potentially unavoidable procedures when they're evaluating a practice. You need an actuary. What are the, you know, given a population, demographics, geographics, what is going to make sense from an actuarial perspective that, that's going to provide a level of, of tolerable risk? You know, and then you need the data. So the data has to be there. You need that infrastructure in order to embark on a value-based care uh, type of environment. And, you know, what I'm seeing is an example in, in transactions now is that you'll have a, a portfolio company backed by a sponsor that is acquiring a practice and they go into their practice and they say, okay, we're, we, we have a strategy. We're going to acquire these 10 practices in this state. We're going to have over a hundred providers and we're going to go back to the payers and negotiate with them. One of their chief negotiating strategies is we have better outcomes and we have lower costs and we're going to prove that to you. And it's really, you know, I think a different approach by many buyers. 
some buyers will just go the traditional route. We're going to acquire you. We're going to absorb you. We're going to take on all of your employees and you are now part of us. You are our employees and we're going to pay you as a, a multiple of your earnings, your EBITDA. Others that I'm seeing are saying, hey, pay us a management fee. Pay our MSO a 15% management fee. And within, you know, we're, we're going to pay you, you know, a certain amount for your practice. And within, you know, a three to four year period, because of our ability to negotiate contracts through this, through our improved outcomes and lower costs, we're going to be able to increase your reimbursement accordingly. And you're, we're going to make up for that 15% that you're paying. When I say 15%, it's a percentage of revenue, which is typically the way that uh, management agreements work. So they actually go in and, and say, hey, just, just run your practice, pay us a management fee. We're going to improve your reimbursement. And by the way, we're going to pay you twice as much as what the other conventional investors are paying. And that's pretty profound, you know, and, and I've seen that happening more and more where it is a bit of a leap of faith, but you, you have investors that are truly bought into this and are becoming more and more risk-based. But even without that risk-based, you know, you're looking at only like a, a shared savings type of opportunity, which is very low risk. You know, they, they feel they can, you know, basically offer a, a greater purchase price for that. From a buyer's perspective, though, do you are there certain elements in, uh, let's take a, a fully formed value-based contracting practice of some scale? Are there any elements that would be a red flag if you were due diligencing that kind of business that would not be the sort of things that you would worry about uh, in a regular business, uh, uh, kind of trajectory angles that, that look like their value-based contracting is loading up a lot of forward liability? Uh, wh what do red flags look like in those sorts of businesses? Well, I, I typically would, would look at, you know, how, how's their data? Is their data clean? Is their data timely? Is it providing the right information? And do they have the infrastructure in place in order to use that data to communicate with their physicians and with their providers? Does that make sense? Is it, is it, is, is it a, an integrated process? And, you know, if you just have, you know, a risk-based, you, you convert from non-risk-based to a risk-based environment, there's a lot of changes that have to take place within that environment. And, that, and, the data, and I think it all starts with the, the data. I, I also would look at, you know, what are, what are the assumptions? What were the original assumptions when they went into that, that value-based contract? You know, is there, were there issues that they didn't contemplate? As, as an example, I had a, a client call me. And uh, they had uh, an opportunity to acquire a practice in a large metropolitan area where the doctors were going to, uh, to nursing homes and to private homes and treating patients at home. It wasn't necessarily the, what you think of as home health, but it is doctors effectively making house calls. And they didn't really contemplate the idea that, number one, how many visits can you see in a day? You know, how many patients can you see in a day? And what are the costs to see in those patients? Well, they didn't consider the fact that they had to hire a driver. They had to drive around the block 10 times while the, the, the provider was seeing the patient. And as a result, you know, the company had approximately $30 million in revenue, and they were losing $3 million a year on that $30 million. Why would that happen? Well, they didn't have their assumptions in place properly. They didn't have the right data. And, you know, they put themselves in a position where they were they were trying to, you know, execute a fire sale on the practice and it wasn't very successful. 
So that, you know, that's an example of, you know, what are the assumptions that went into this and, you know, what kind of data is being provided and how often is, are, you know, do you have the ability to revisit, you know, that contract? So those are the types of things that I've seen. That's a good example of why private equity backed platforms feel like they are well suited to move into value-based contracting it's a good example of a setup where a business strategy requires the combination of kind of technical expertise and capital, which means often bringing in particular skill sets onto a management team. It means investing in data analytics and, and other components to make sure that you're flying with your headlights on. And the example that you gave is a good ex example of uh, why the absence of capital uh, connected to those platforms can make value-based contracting very dangerous and also uh, d demonstrate why kind of private equity, which brings the capital into these scenarios, uh, is uh, often a good partner for moving in that direction. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, enablers, you know, there's, there's uh, one, one of my clients is a, is a large nephrology practice and they use what, what I would call, I guess it's called an enabler where they come in and they say, look, you know, we're going to, we're going to execute a value-based care contract for you. We're going to basically take all the downside risk and we're going to take 70% of the savings. You'll get 30% of the savings and there's no risk to you. So what, you know, he basically last year, they made $2 million on that. They had to pay whatever the, 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 the enabler a million five or whatever, whatever the, the formula was. And, you know, if you were to look at a, at a private equity environment, you know, they could perhaps come in and say, hey, we're, we're going to do that without the enabler. We're going to come in and make, we're, we're going to make that $2 million on our own because we're going to put the infrastructure in place and we know that you're, you've been successful at this. So I think that, you know, having the ability to put, put that infrastructure in place, having that money in, to, to to basically invest in, in, in your infrastructure and, and in, you know, basically the integration of this practice, I think really is, is, is a very valuable commodity. And I think that that's one of the reasons why, you know, private equity, I think, has such a great interest in this. You know, I, I also believe that, you know, investing in that infrastructure, if you're planning on selling, for example, in five or five to seven years, you know, if you've invested in that infrastructure and you're going to market, I think you're going to get a bigger multiple, you know, by having that infrastructure as opposed to saying, hey, we're going to just go continue with our fee for service model. We're going to have, yes, we're going to have integration. We're going to have a lot of synergies. We're going to make more money. We're going to, you know, do all these things. But having that infrastructure in place when you're going to market, I think is going to make a difference, you know, in, in the next five to seven years. It's also uh, interesting to see how the market is responding at the higher end uh, of the market in the sense that um, there's a number of sectors where it gets a little trickier to think what is the ultimate buyer uh, of this consolidated provider services uh, business look like? What are their ambitions? You can there still is a lot of, for example, uh, consolidation in the dental arena. But at some point you're consolidating, consolidating, and you have bigger and bigger and bigger. Right. And who's going to buy those? And what what are what do they need as a as a billion and a half dollar buyer of that sort of business? With respect to the uh, kind of value based contracting businesses, it's a lot easier to wrap your head around who the ultimate buyers of those are. Uh, in that, 
you've got a lot of uh, kind of big box buyers that are very, very interested in this space, whether that's CVS paying a boatload of money for Oak Street, Optum buying everything, any number of payers uh, are, are interested in this space uh, such that uh, as you're a, a private equity investor building those businesses, it's much easier to wrap your head around the ultimate buyer of a business at scale, which is a big driver of value as well. Absolutely. I think that, you know, you see those types of big box buyers, they're, they're really a combination of providers and payers. You know, they, they have their, their staff of providers and they've already kind of, I think they've been doing this for a while, but they, they, they live that way. And, uh, you know, you know, many, many practices that are being acquired, particularly on the, the primary care side, are being acquired with the idea that, yeah, you're, you're going to be able to, we're going to be able to buy you, we're going to pay you more than your historical earnings because we know what our opportunities are. And, you know, it, it does, you know, it's, a, it's, it's the ability to create that value because you already have that infrastructure in place. I also think the uh, imminent death of fee-for-service in healthcare has been predicted uh, imminently for quite a while. And uh, while the trend line in favor of value-based contracting at some level is going to continue, the uh, the death of fee for service is probably uh, overstated, and the bulk of the market is still going to look a lot like the bulk of the market has for a while. So balancing those trends with kind of the existing and continued fee for service arena uh, is still very much a part of how I think uh, buyers are assessing the market. I agree, but you know, even looking at a at a at the idea of pay for performance or lack thereof, you know, look, look at like radiology, right? I mean, how much how much more can you uh, affect uh, a, a treatment process than the radiologist performing at the right level? If they miss something, then it's catastrophic, and it's not just a matter of of billing the CPT codes there. It's a matter of you know our you know how have you performed? So I think. In every level of healthcare, that that pay for performance component really has to be in place at some point. And I think Medicare is leading the way with it. I think Medicaid will be there as well. Um, but you're right; the commercial payers are, are things are going well for them. So why 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 rock the boat? It will come, but slowly. Right, Larry. I think we'll break it there. Uh, try to keep these on a consistent time frame. It's been a ton of fun to explore this topic with you. Uh, it's definitely the wave of the future, but not quite here yet, but uh, coming. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity, and I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you for joining us on this installment of The Professor's Corner. To learn more about today's discussion, please email host Jeff Cockrell at gcockrell at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This series was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this series, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this installment. The views, information, or opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This series should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state, and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.